The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? It's been a really stressful day today. We ended up without any internet for the whole morning, and I didn't know this was a thing. So you know outside on the streets in England how you have those big poles? First of all, I was always just amazed that they have these like big poles with wires going into every house, but I had always assumed it was electricity and it was just super dangerous because, you know, why not? Like In our cellar, we have this Bakelite and cloth wire that comes in that says property of Battersea, do not touch, which is clearly from like 1930. So I figured, of course, you could also just have random wires going into your house, but they're not your electricity wires. I don't know where those are. They are your telephone wires. And so they needed to replace the entire pole. So they came in with this big lorry with multiple poles, took all of our wires off and just had them like wrapped around the different gates of all of the houses, got rid of the pole, dug a bigger hole, stuck a new one in and then attached all the wires again. So like all the houses you mean, those poles connect like, I don't know, X amount of houses, don't they? Yeah. So all of us didn't have the internet while they were changing our telephone pole. Not even the lines. The lines are still the same. They just needed to put a new pole in place. And of course, no warning. Nobody said, by the way, we're going to come and remove (laughs) the pole across the street. (laughs) That sounds super UK specific, doesn't it? I cannot imagine anything of the sort in Canada or North America. Yeah. I think as North Americans, we're just like, what? This is a thing? Like, how can this be a thing? (laughs) But it is. My internet is down because you're removing our pole, connecting all the houses, putting us all offline. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was just such a ridiculous situation that I was like, I ended up going for a walk because there was nothing else to do. And I passed the workers and they were all quite friendly. And I was like, how long is it going to take? And like, yeah, hour, hour and a half. Here's my recommendation, which you're you're probably not going to like, but As a senior executive, I recognized during lockdown that my internet connection was my lifeblood to getting my job done, basically. And my boss at the time is kind of on me because of my shitty internet, essentially. (laughs) I continued to pay for Virgin Media as my primary internet service for the house. But separately, I've actually purchased Vodafone wireless Wi-Fi as well. It sits on my desk. And it's a great connection, great throughput, similar to Virgin Media in that sense. So it's just really nice to have like a, a clear backup. That has nothing to do with wireline activity whatsoever, but I pay obviously you know another 50, 60 pounds a month for that, I guess. So with that, uh, we've got a fascinating topic for today, which is how does a co-founder CEO survive and thrive in organizations? And we've got the perfect guest for that in Mr. Tom Mundy, the co-founder CEO of Goodlord. And he has been on an eight-year journey in that organization, and they have raised over 70 million US in the process, and he's been through numerous ups and downs. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. Before we get to that, I guess I just wanted to share a quick story. It was the fall of 2016. I just joined Signal AI as the chief operating officer off the back of their Series A. And their office was 
just off of the Algate Station on Lehman Street. It's the tech space building for those that are familiar with the UK kind of tech startup scene. And I remember going into the building and another Series A company had just entered that building as well, which happened to be Good Lord. And that building on Lehman Street still is there today for tech space. And for those that are interested, which I'm sure the listeners are not, on the first floor, there's like a stripper place, basically. <laughs> so it's not the best building, let's put it that way. But the amusing part to me slightly was that I remember six, nine months into that experience, I remember hearing rumors that Good Lord was in huge trouble off the back of their Series A, which is they had hired a bunch of enterprise sales reps. The enterprise sales reps were not selling. And these were all kind of senior heavyweight enterprise sellers. And you can imagine if they're not selling, not hitting quota, nobody's happy basically. And they're paying a ton of money as part of that exercise. And what ended up happening, I thought at the time, was that the entire company had tanked because what I saw was that they had left the building. We ended up picking up an ex-employee from Good Lord that joined Signal at the time. So I was like, yeah, these guys are done. <laughs> uh, and then fast forward to early 2019, I then joined Trent as a company who also was in tech space and happened to be on Whitechapel Street, which is literally five minutes walk from Lehman Street. And this is a smaller tech space building as well. I walk into tech space Whitechapel and lo and behold, I see Good Lord their name on the board there. I'm like, oh my God, these guys actually survived. <laughs> Similarly, a few months later, I was like, what is the deal here? So as I then understood it, the original founding CEO had left the company or was removed from the company, I don't quite know. And they had hired a professional CEO to come into to run the business. And that literally was the last thing I heard of Good Lord up until literally this conversation we're now going to have. So with that, why don't we flip over to our chat with Tom and let's see what he has to say. I'm pleased to welcome Tom Mundy to the podcast today. Tom is co-founder of Good Lord, as Brandon explained earlier in the conversation. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Beth. Uh, it's lovely to be here. So I'd just love to hear some of your origin story, some of the Good Lord origin story, both in terms of how you came about founding the business, but also how you ended up as COO. It's always one of those things I wonder about when you have multiple co-founders, who gets which role? Good Lord started as three co-founders. There was Richard, there was Philip, and there was myself. Richard was a letting agent, Philip was kind of technical, and I'd actually just been at university and started businesses at university. So didn't really have any technology experience, but had a good understanding of how to set up a Twitter account and get a website up and running and all the really important things when you're uh, founding a business from scratch. Richard and Philip actually kind of came up with the Good Lord idea and then asked me, you know, do I want to join this ride? And I was like, yeah. So that was kind of how we started the business and how we then assigned roles and how we decided who was going to be CEO, who was going to be COO. I think that was a little bit more kind of mix of randomness and a mix of kind of circumstance at the time. One of the co-founders, he was he was CEO of another business at the same time. So I think he was never really going to take that CEO seat. And Richard was a letting agent, was into sales. You know, I think he had all the all the kind of the key traits of a CEO. And myself, I actually wasn't COO when I was first co-founder. My initial title was actually Squire. Squire. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I've actually still got a business card with it on. I then went to head of success and then COO. It kind of evolved over time for me, and that was really how we decided. But I think if I was to look back on it, it's a mix of your talents and what your edge is. 
But I do think that there could be a little bit more science in it. And I think maybe not right at the beginning. I think as kind of founders get to kind of seed stage, they should be thinking about things like insights tests and kind of personality tests, because I think this kind of stuff is really relevant. And being a little bit more fluid with your titles in the early days, but then making sure that, you know, when you do land on them, you've done a little bit of research and there's a bit of science behind it. I think that would be helpful. That's fascinating. So that thought that you just expressed there, when do you think that would be appropriate to have happen then? I think in the early days, you kind of just do what you're good at and you kind of gravitate towards that. But then when you put a chief title on your name, it kind of puts you in a box. We're all co-founders. Maybe we're pre-seed or we've started kind of making a bit of revenue. And we're not taking that kind of, I need to be labeled too seriously. I think actually you could get along with saying, actually, this person is delegated decision maker and this person is going to make most of the shots. And actually, when we're, we're really serious, okay, we are going to take on some investment. We are going to kind of create a board, create an advisory. That's actually when we, we really kind of seal this with a bit more kind of insight. I think that would be helpful. I assume you didn't go through that process because you're suggesting that you should go through that process, but yet you still move from Squire to COO. So how did you become COO and how did you decide that there was that title rather than any of the other C titles that was the right one? I think for me, I've always been quite hands-on. I have a very clear bias for action with things. I was looking after our support teams. I was looking after kind of our account management teams. And a lot of the day-to-day kind of business running was kind of going through the teams I was looking after. And I think really COO at the time felt like the right one. It just felt like it covered enough of my area. I don't think there is another another C title that I think would have fitted my responsibilities at the time. So I think it landed correctly. I suppose my point is, I think when you're founding a business, you don't really think too much about the personalities behind the person. And I think that insight, as we scaled as a business, we implemented insights into the business. And I think had we'd had that earlier, we would have maybe understood each other a lot more and probably scaled as a founding team better. The quick following question then is when you made that decision, was there, I don't know, any kind of like mindset shift on your part that you had to really think through in terms of what that meant to your role going forward for the company? I think it definitely felt like a bit more of a, okay, right, I've been doing this. I've been taking on a lot of responsibility and and now it feels like I'm, I'm probably in the right role. You know, one of my co-founders, my brother, I, I think there was definitely a prove yourself aspect to it. And it felt good. It felt good to move into that role where you're like, okay, cool. You know, I probably now have the right title for the responsibilities I have. Whereas if you have more responsibilities for your, your title, you're probably, you're always feeling a little bit kind of under the cosh a little bit. Did not realize that one of the co-founders was your brother. That's an entirely new dynamic to the entire situation. <laughs> a layer of complication, I would say. Oh, yeah. Because I was going to ask another question around that COO title, and I think you may have already somewhat alluded to it, but in my journey to becoming a COO, like there was definitely this feeling that being a COO is truly deputy, the second into command, but also like a deep partner to the CEO. And so there was quite a bit of conversation and expectation setting before I, I don't know, was anointed with that title. Anointed is probably not the right word, although you were a squire, so I think it all works. Did you have a similar situation where you had to like prove yourself and work through the relationship before getting the title? I think because our founding was, we were very much together. And I think we went through all the early pains and struggles together. I think that happened naturally. I don't think there was this time where with the CEO, I was like, okay, you know, these are our rules of engagement. I don't think we did that. I think that kind of evolved over time. It's definitely a thing. 
you need to understand the person you're working with and how they work best and how you can complement them. So from that point, if you think about the past eight years being the CEO of Good Lord, can you maybe just walk us through some of the key inflection points where you sat yourself down? You're like, look, I need to grow my skill set. Am I going to truly take on the full mandate of this chief operating officer role as the company is growing in size, Series A, Series B, and so on, and going through some of the trials and tribulations that you did? Was there, I don't know, certain time periods where you're like, look, I need to change what I'm doing. I need to grow my skill set. I think there was a time where actually kind of quite early on 2017, actually, your previous guest on this podcast was kind of my mentor. And Davinia definitely helped me kind of form confidence in myself and confidence in in the role. She confirmed that some of the stuff I was doing was was good. Some of the stuff could be better, but kind of gave me that kind of rough roadmap of what I should be developing. So that was a key kind of formative, formative kind of time for me. That was closely followed by a period in the business's history, which we talk about pre and post. And that moment was when the business went through a pretty tough time. And for me, as at the time, the last kind of standing co-founder, I really had to like look into myself and say, okay, right, we need to roll our sleeves up and take this seriously or all the business might not be here. It was the beginning of me moving from that COO that rolls the sleeves up, involved in everything, kind of probably answering phone calls themselves to just standing back a little bit and developing the team so that we could scale. That was kind of the turning point for that. But it was also the turning point because I got a new CEO. So I think there was quite a lot going on at that time. That was a key one for me. Did your new CEO help develop you and explain what was needed for a COO in this next stage? A hundred percent. I think after Davinia, I never got another mentor because I think I had a mentor with, with William. He'd been in this role before very experienced leader. And and I think he definitely guided me into how my, my role developed and changed over time was, was quite natural as to the needs of the business. But I think I had that constant coaching of how I could probably do it better or where I'd probably need to spend more time or less time. That is very important. And I think one tip that I would definitely give to any COO is make sure that you've got a, you know, a solid mentor that has been through this before, because actually it's quite a lonely job. And you need someone that you can bounce things off. And I think that I've had in different ways throughout my career. We have co-founders that might be listening to this podcast that are in fact CEOs and they're going through this journey themselves. And we think about that initial time period where the company raised their Series A, struggled tremendously. There was the switch over in terms of exiting several co-founders, the new CEO coming in, you kind of reevaluating what was then required from you to be successful in that capacity over the past time period now. Is there any kind of tips or not not tips, I think in this case, but things for those young co-founders to think about in terms of evolving their skill set and things to think about in that process to ensure that they can be successful? What I kind of think is one of one of my greatest assets was the fact that I'd been in lots of different roles and I'd done lots of different things. So I could really relate to most processes that happen in the business, which then means that you can relate to kind of most teams and team members in the business. And I think that allowed me to build a lot of trust because people knew that I wasn't just telling them to do something that I didn't understand. If you can get that experience, I would say roll your sleeves up and do it. You know, especially in the early days, it's it's not time to kind of sit back and look at what you've built. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get stuck in and you will benefit from that experience years to come. And it goes a long way. So I think definitely get involved and use that as a strength. If we're going to kind of young founders and first-time founders, we didn't listen to the crowd. We didn't listen to kind of the collective wisdom. We kind of rebelled against it. And that was a really bad idea. (laughs) I wasn't sure which way it was going to (laughs) go. In areas where it was our edge, it was our strength, we did it. And 
it kind of worked. There were times where my naivety is probably the word allowed us to get really good prices on things just because you know, we, we were ballsy and we just went for it. But then sometimes we made decisions that people told us that was a terrible idea and we still went ahead with them and it didn't pay off. So I would definitely say back yourself on the things that are your strengths, but listen to the experience when it comes to areas that, that might not be your strength. I don't think that's just only for young co-founders. Like We interviewed Keith Wallington a couple episodes ago, and that was one of the things he said about Mimecast is they just reinvented the wheel so many times because they didn't talk to anybody else. They were the only ones and they were doing it better. And then when he left Mimecast and started talking to other people, he's like, oh, everyone had these problems and everybody was inventing it for the first, like reinventing everything. So there's definitely benefit in talking to other people. 100%. I still remember this specific conversation. It was a conversation with a uh, very experienced Salesforce consultant that just told me, you know, just do a really, really simple implementation. Just, you know, do it basic. Then you can build on it. We went, no, no, we're going to go all singing, all dancing. It's going to have full kind of contract renewals, usage of data. And, and still today, you will find remnants of that horrible implementation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are so many things like that, but there are also definitely benefits of that kind of confidence. So embrace it in, in the right way. And I think my last learning, and I will kind of always try and remember this and keep this kind of close, is, is, is be as humble as you can be, because there are always people that know more, that are better than you. And I think you really can't go wrong with humility and, and just being like, I've got no ego. I just want the business to succeed. That for me is, you know, is, is, has been good and there's no downside. Do you think that's part of what made you last so much longer than everyone else? I was thinking about this and I think there were two good lords almost. There was pre and post 2018 for it and, and I had two CEOs. So it was almost like, let's split it into a four-year and a five-year stint. But I think with that, I had to be quite adaptable. And I had to, you know, be open to change. And there were times where my, the teams that I would manage would move and would change. And if I think if I got protective or, you know, empire building, and I was like, no, 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 they're my teams, I, I wouldn't have lasted as long. And I, think I wouldn't have been thinking about the business's best interest and I shouldn't be there. So I think that kind of openness to change, lack of ego, that definitely helped. One thought that occurs to me, which is uh, we have a Tom Monday from eight years ago. We have yourself now. And specifically, when you think about leadership and leadership capability, and also the size of the organization, which has grown from zero to whatever it is now, 250, something like that. What is it that's changed about you when it comes to leadership? I think for me, it's I was always the one that would just do it and just get it done. And I think over time, I've learned not in the smoothest manner, but I have learned that I need to stand back and I need to let people do their job and fail and succeed. And I can't be the one that just goes and does it because number one, that doesn't scale. Um, and number two, you then don't let your team get those learnings. And that is the most you know important thing for any employee in a business is that they're, that they're learning. Earning or learning, I think, is the two things you should be doing. And if you're doing neither, leave. I think for me, it's been that, okay, stand back, let the process happen. And with that comes people feeling like they're getting more responsibility. You trust them more. They enjoy their job more because they have more ownership. If I was to kind of put my finger on one thing, it, it would be that. So another question I have, kind of going back to mentorship and maybe also resources, you learned basically entirely on the job and came in with also a great attitude and a, a growth mindset. You stumbled across Davinia, you actively found her. 
how would you kind of help other people figure that out? <laughs> we had very good VCs. So number one, get good VCs. Davinia was a recommendation from Local Globe, or at the very least, uh, Zero Roundtable was a recommendation from those guys as well. So I think surround yourself by people that are well-connected and you're going to be able to make these connections. I really lucked out because Davinia was training at the time. So I think we got it for an affordable rate. It's one of those things that it's hard to justify at the time, but I think you just need to bite the bullet and do it. If you can do it with equity, great. You know, Give them a slice of the pie and they'll be even more kind of motivated. But surround yourself with good advisors. Use the kind of networks that are available and and then just kind of bite the bullet when it comes to the obscene day rate that you're like, what? We don't make any profit. <laughs> I have two follow-on questions. One is, what do you mean by getting a good investor? What does a good investor mean? A good investor, typically you would look at investors that have the best returns, you know, the, the people that invest in the best companies, they then get the best returns. I think there are so many other factors that are important though. They have to gel with you as founders. They need to really, really align with the mission. I've definitely seen people that are attracted to the business over time that are attracted to the business because it's doing well, not because they really, really gel with the mission. And we were lucky enough to have throughout our journey, have VCs that even when the chips were down and the wrong color came up, they stood behind us because they stood behind the mission. So I, I think if you can tease that out and if they really believe and it's when they actually talk the mission back to you, talk the kind of what it looks like, what great looks like back to you. I think that's when you probably know that that they're aligned. And then I think you will see it in the industry. You'll see successful companies and you'll be like, ah, oh, they're backed by this VC. They're backed by this CC. And you'll see that they've got a great network. And I think that's not that hard to do. If you look at an investor and they've got no companies, that you, you, know, you don't know any other companies and you know, you've never heard of them, then there's a chance that they're probably not going to have a very good network. So try and find ones that, you know, your companies that you know that are successful and they'll be able to introduce you to their founders and their founders will introduce you to other people and things like that. So I think that's probably what I would be saying is like good VC. And the second question was mentor or coach or coach mentor? I would say coach mentor. I think you need somebody that's going to call you out and improve you as a person but you also need somebody that is that can guide the way a little bit there's no use just knowing that you're not you're not quite there yet you need to know where you need to get to and i think for me you know having two individuals that had been in the same seat and done similar things and knew what good looked like and i think that's really really important that was important for me as an operational person as somebody that wanted to know the answer wanted to get as much information as possible i wanted to know where we're going not just kind of like how we're going to get there and then a slightly uh, different question. This was actually a crowdsourced question, by the way. So uh, thank you, Davinia, for helping with this. But when it comes to unit economics and Good Lord, what is the role that the CEO should play in that and the role that you played with Good Lord specifically when it came to unit economics and making sure the business was moving the needle? I'm going to kind of answer this with the worst type of answer, but it kind of really depends. It depends on the COO. I think if you're a traditional COO and you're, you're looking after HR and you're looking after internal operations and legal and, and those kind of things, your influence over unit economics is probably not that great directly. If you're more of the you know, operational, your kind of day-to-day -day running of the business, or you, you run individual business units, then unit economics, you own them. They're yours. And as, as a leader, you need to make sure that you manage them. Regardless of the type of COO, you still have the strategic requirement from your role. 
and you need to be able to call out bad unit economics or great unit economics, regardless. You need to be reviewing the business as a whole and saying, you know, this doesn't look so so good over here, guys, or we need to improve this. So I think that goes regardless. I think for me, a lot of the things have been kind of contractual. So negotiating good contracts and getting us into a place where, let's say, our, you know, we had an energy provider that the unit economics were a bit murky uh, for one of our products, but we found a new one. We negotiated a good rate and went from being murky unit economics to very positive and then went on to be a very solid contributor to our PL. So there's no one size fits all. For me, it was probably more on the contract negotiation side because that's really what I, I relish and love. But it really depends on the COO, I'd say. Thanks, Brandon, for reminding me that we had asked for questions. So I have a series of questions to ask you. The first is, how have you dealt with burnout or impending burnout in that time? Eight years in a startup, especially as a co-founder, and seeing good lords scaling to those kinds of numbers is no joke. Not just the physical and mental investment it requires, but the emotional one as well. Good question. I don't think I've burnt out yet. But I don't think you know about burnout, do you? It just happens. There's definitely been times where I've broken down in tears and I just needed someone to speak to. I think I've had a great support network around me, which has been very helpful. I think I've been very open with things that are tough. I don't take too much personally. I don't let it attack my, my own personality. So I kind of see it very much as the work thing. Over time, I've, I've definitely needed to figure out how to deal with stress. I think you can feel stress building up. There's definitely kind of physical and, and mental markers for that. And I think you need to fight, figure out something that really kind of helps you. For me, actually, there was a period where Good Lord was pretty tough and horse riding actually really helped. Getting that kind of time where you can just not think about work and you're not even allowed to look at your phone because you've got two hands in, in the reins. I think that's really, really useful. I think every individual is different. Everyone handles stress differently. For me, I've, you know, I've been lucky today. On the not taking things personally, are you just born that way or have you figured out a way to not take things personally? I think it's more born that way. I'm the youngest of five. I think I went through quite intense character building lessons. But yeah, no, I, I think I'm quite an easygoing person and try not to take things too personally. Second question of Emily's, this is Emily Lincoln Gordon, by the way, is you've done a lot of COO plus type stuff, like de facto general counsel, I guess, is GC, I'm guessing, leading the DT functions for the funding rounds. Looks like you've done HR and finance without a background in any of it. How have you handled it? And how have you made sure you should be the owner of those things over time? It's a good question. I've loved the fact that I've been exposed to so many different things. They've always happened quite organically, like managed our first due diligence round. That meant I had a good relationship with our lawyers. And then, you know, that meant that, you know, most legal questions would kind of come through me and then get diverted to our lawyers if I saw fit. So it happened quite naturally, I think is probably the how. How did I make sure I was in check? I think you need to keep tally of your your wins and your misses. And I think for as long as you're making more wins than misses and your misses aren't too bad, I think, yes, you could be professionally trained, but there will be millions of people out there that are not professionally trained and do a great job at things. So I think you need to back yourself a bit. But I think you should keep tally. And when it gets quite serious, that's when your board is really important. And I think you need to have quite good governance and you know, making sure that you're following best practice when it comes to governance. And if you do that, then hopefully the process should pull up that actually we need a proper general counsel now, or we do need to be referring these contracts to lawyers, or we do need to get somebody full-time in compliance. 
for me, it was always a little bit of kind of, I definitely back myself through these processes. But then I think we also had quite a good board that held us accountable if things went wrong. Just going back to earlier in the conversation, because to me, this is quite fascinating as a co-founding CEO. So you talked about two different good lords, the pre and the post. And with William Reeve coming in as the new professionalized CEO, I'm really curious about that conversation when he first came in and sat down with you and talked through what he needed from you as a CEO and what he was looking for. Because I suspect there was quite a changeover for you in terms of what you needed to do, what you needed to think about, how you needed to structure your work, you know, what you were going to be responsible for. And I'm just curious in that conversation or set of conversations, if there's anything we can tease out that can help others as part of that process. So I still really, really remember the first conversation we had, actually. And I think this first conversation was probably the most important conversation that we had as kind of partners. When kind of William was deciding if he was going to work with us and and vice versa, we had probably like, it was meant to be an hour, but it probably went to two hour chat of just full open book, like everything. These are all the broken things. These are all the things that are great. This is where I think we're doing well. And this is what I'm doing. This is, you know, what other people are doing. Like as much information as possible. It's going to come out through conversations with other people that, you know, might want to stab you in the back or it might come out through documents or whatever. Like just be open as possible because this is your time to get everything on the table. And then from then on, what you're doing is you're kind of, you're setting the precedent of we've got an open and transparent relationship and we can share things. So I think that was a very, very important conversation. And then that set the precedent for kind of conversations between me and William. And I think from then on, it was just, let's make sure that when things are important, we're both the first to hear about it, and then we can make decisions well. In terms of kind of then how the responsibilities changed, I think that just fed on from the open conversation. It was kind of, okay, cool. Well, based on what I've seen now, you know, this is how the, this is how I think I'm going to structure the organization. And for me, that was fine. Uh, you know, I felt like you know, probably playing to my strengths and playing to his strengths, and, and it went well from there. So be open, be transparent. Awesome, Tom. I'm sure we could continue speaking, but unfortunately we can't. We're rapidly coming up on our time. We've covered so many different areas of your last eight years. If there was just one thing you would like to leave the audience with that they can remember from this conversation, whether you've said it or not already, what's the one thing that's the most important takeaway for our audience. Back yourself. No one else will. I think, yeah, back yourself. Perfect. So thank you, Tom, for joining us on the operations room. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment and we will see you next week. Bye.